This is Salt and Spine. I've started to take a lot more notice to cookbooks and a lot more respect to them because food comes from the soul. And the people that are writing these books and giving these recipes are giving you a part of their soul and sharing their love for whatever dish it is that they're presenting to you. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Rodney Scott. Now, Rodney Scott is actually just the second pitmaster to be honored with the James Beard Award. In 2018, he won the James Beard Award for Best Chef Southwest, and it's all because of his whole hog barbecue, which actually stems from his childhood roots. He grew up in South Carolina, where his parents owned a number of businesses, including a barbecue place. Rodney joined the family business for a while, but it gets messy, as family businesses tend to do. And in 2017, he moved to Charleston and opened Rodney Scott's Whole Hog Barbecue. A year later came the James Beard Award, and not long after that, an episode of the Emmy-nominated Chef's Table Barbecue on Netflix. And now, of course, we're here to talk with Rodney about his first cookbook, Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue, Every Day is a Good Day. We'll talk about that subtitle, Every Day is a Good Day, and how it has become a mantra for him throughout his life and career. And of course, we'll talk all about whole hog barbecue and what an important piece of American culinary history it is. So let's jump right into our conversation with today's guest, Rodney Scott, author of Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. Hi, Rodney. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're thrilled to have you uh, and to talk about your first cookbook, Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. Excellent title. I love it. But before we get to the book, let's talk a little bit about you. I think some of our listeners may know of you, but if not, let's let's give them a little sense of um, how you got to where you are today. So I know you grew up in South Carolina in Hemingway, is that right? Correct, yes. And can you talk about the role that food played in your life as a kid? I know it was a family affair for a while, but when did that start and how did sort of, what do you remember of food as, the, as you were growing up in that early time? You know, as growing up, food and family was, was something that you would often see on Sundays, um, something mm-hmm. that you would experience starting Friday nights, Saturday evenings to Sunday afternoon dinners. You know, um, that was how we rolled. That was how we ate. And it would be anything from grandma frying fish to chicken being fried to some barbecue or, you know, something off the farm out of the garden. So we, we kind of grew sure. a lot of the foods that we use. So it, it was kind of normal to see your dinner walking around right. <laughs> on, on Friday. You see the chicken that you're going to eat on Sunday. Uh-huh. So it was yeah. normal to, to, for that for me. And when you were growing up, your parents owned a few different businesses, I know. One of them was a barbecue place. What Was that around before you were born? When did that sort of come into the picture? My mom said, uh, I was born in 1971, and my mom said that they opened a business in 1972. Um, And so I was there a year prior to them opening a business, and that's when I started doing barbecue. So I kind of grew up in that environment of the variety store with the barbecue and of course, they had a, a gas station and pool hall as well. Yeah, so pretty much your whole childhood, you were exposed to that. And I know the barbecue became, I think originally your parents were doing barbecue like once a week or something, and it, it became popular and, and started happening more frequently. And then around 11, right, you get your chance to cook your first whole pig, right? Yes, exactly. Um, around 11, I cooked my first whole pig. 
again, those were you grew up around food. That's what you did. Uh-huh. Um, it was always around. And it was only on Thursdays that we did the whole hog. And eventually it kind of got a little popular to the fact we did it on Fridays and we said, why not Saturday? And, you know, now we're up to at least four days a week in Hemingway. So at, at that time, what was that like with, as an 11 year old to be um, trusted with that responsibility? Right. I think you'd been watching your dad and other folks cook pigs. Right. But you hadn't had that chance to do it yourself. What was do you remember what that was like? Man, it was scary, you know, as an 11 year old cooking a whole hog. You know, that was a huge responsibility because that was part of the money. And, right. you know, I've seen I've seen my dad do it and knew how he did it, but never had the responsibility and hands on to do it all the way through. Yeah. So this was that first time and it was a challenge to, hey, look, this is what you're going to do today. This this is it. And uh, I like I, I always say, this guy was watching me the entire time, making sure that I didn't screw anything up. Uh-huh. And I just kept doing what he told me, you know, every 10 to 15 minutes, go put some heat under it. And I would run and check the clock and run back and, you know, put some heat under it. Yeah. And, and I knew to listen for the drips and to make sure it didn't burn. Yeah. And it turned out. Turned out great. It wasn't burnt. Yeah. Um, it was done. And we they flipped it over because I, you know, I'm eleven. I couldn't really lift a lot. <laughs> right. And they, they flipped it over and I was I was just, I remember staring at it once they flipped it over. And one guy, he just clearly said, That boy, he didn't burn it. Yeah. And it's yeah, not, he didn't. You know, those were words of you know, of comfort for me. I was like, Woo. Right. <laughs> so at what point do you uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of pressure as an 11 year old. What point do you start thinking about food as a career path for you? Is it like in that moment as an 11 year old? How does this sort of all work out for you? Man, as a career path, food at 11 years old, it wasn't a thought. It was just yeah. uh, another chore done. And okay. it, was, right. it wasn't until about my senior year in high school, I started to pay attention when the bus would pass the barbecue pits in the morning, the aroma of the smoke coming out of the pits and some of my, my schoolmates on the bus would, would kind of laugh at me and, and say, man, that smelled good. And then we had uh, uh, economics and government in our senior year in high school, uh-huh. supply and demand. And I learned supply and demand food. I said, this is something we do. I can take this one thing and learn how to do it maybe. And that's when I yeah. really started to pay attention to food a little bit more. Still yet, I wasn't involved. It, I would have to say I wasn't completely committed until I was about 24, okay. 25 years old. Okay. And at that point, was it just like it, it was clear for you? It was that was your vision? And because it really has become, you know, you're a evangelist for whole hog barbecue. It really has become your life. Was it it became sort of clear in that moment? In, in Within that moment of 24, 25 years old, I said, if I'm going to be doing this, I'm going to try to make the best of it. I'm going to enjoy every moment I can try to enjoy, turn my work into fun and share uh-huh. it with as many people as I can. And that was the only thought that I had at the time. And I, I said, I'm going to try to focus and see how to present and make this food taste better. Yeah. Can we talk about whole hog barbecue a little bit for folks who might not be familiar with it? I, I It's a specific type of barbecue, a specific style of cooking that's often called like the oldest continuous form of barbecue in the United States. Can you talk about what whole hog barbecue is, what it means to you and paint a picture for folks who maybe haven't experienced it? Well, you know, whole hog barbecue is pretty much just what it is. Whole hog, whole uh-huh. hog, meaning the ham, shoulders, loins, the bacon, the, be- the, the belly, uh, the entire animal from the rooter to the tutor, as some people would say, it, you know, uh-huh. yeah. from the snout all the way to the tail is the whole hog. And, 
cooking the whole thing at once requires more time as opposed to a lot of people are more familiar with smaller cuts. Right. They choose to cook a ham, a Boston butt, shoulder, you know, these kind of cuts is more of what a lot of people are familiar with when they say pulled pork. Sure. But whole hog is the entire animal cooking at once, which can average anywhere from eight to 12 hours, depending on the size of the hog. So yeah. it's, it's a different, it's a different thing. It's, it's a, you're talking about a larger cooking spot, be it on a, a mobile grill or a pit that you build. It, it is, it is an entire animal. It's bigger than just a smaller grill that you would have in your backyard. Yeah. And, and eight to 10 hours average and you flip it once. Well, at Rodney Scott's, we do 12 hours on our hogs. Okay. Our hogs average anywhere from 160 plus. Okay. And, um, eight to 10 hours is usually when you got smaller hogs, all depends on how you're cooking it. If you're going to cook it uh, on cinder block pits, if it's like anywhere from 60 to 80 pounds. And then as the larger the hog gets, the the more time you're going to need cooking it. Sure. And uh, uh, we do 12 hours on our hogs and we flip it once in the 12 hour. Okay. At the end. At the end. The last hour we At flip our hog. And then when you serve whole hog barbecue, you're mixing all of those pieces, all of those parts together. Yeah. That's Absolutely. part of what yes. makes it. Yeah. So serving whole hog, you, you you don't just bite into one section, one cut. You you get that, that entire animal in a bite, believe it or not. You get right. pulls of ham, belly, shoulder, and we like to put them together so that you can get the different textures and flavors from different cuts of the hog. And you can that, that's what we mean when we say whole hog. And we like to describe it as a difference you can taste. Yeah. For example, you 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 I can go to a barbecue restaurant and know when they cook shoulders only. Because of the texture, tasting it. Yeah. tasting it, the texture all, and the appearance of it will all tell you that it's only one particular cut. Yeah. Now, I know you I've read that you also can taste the the type of wood that was used. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've got an award award winning palate. Yeah. <laughs> so, sometimes I can pick it right out. Uh, I can I can bite into a sandwich or taste some pork and tell you if it's cooked with a lot of hickory or some uh-huh. oak or a little bit of pecan is in there. The, you know, after years and years of eating this stuff, you you kind of figure that out after a little bit. But uh, yeah, you can you can tell that nuance. What what type of wood do you use? I prefer to use uh, majority oak and some hickory. I like majority of oak because of the heat and the nice mild flavor that it gives. Hickory has a more of a stronger flavor than oak, and it has a good heat. It has nice strong heat to it. So you get a a, a quick punch of hickory. But majority of it is still covered with the oak. So it's kind of a blend. And if we get our hands on some pecan or pecan wood, all depends on which state you live in. You know, you say uh-huh, it. Right. Right. Um, right. We, we we tend to uh, use some pecan as well if we can get it. Okay. Now, you were working with your at, at your parents' shop for a while, working with your dad. At some point, you decided to go out on your own. Can you talk a little bit about what that decision was like? And then I know also, you know, moving into a bigger city, moving into a new clientele with your barbecue shop. Talk us through that sort of business decision a little bit and what that looked like for your career. Well, you know, back in 2015, the opportunity came for me to uh, move to Charleston and open up my own Rodney Scott's barbecue. Um, uh-huh. Along with my partner, Nick Mack, as we, we discussed it and, you know, I didn't really think about it much. And I was like, no, nah, I'm OK. And in 2015, I decided to go out on this venture and say, let's do it. 2016, um, we all know how working with family could be. Not everybody was on board with that idea. And uh, 
there were some disagreements between me and my father. And it, and it got to the point where he no longer even wanted me there at that particular spot in Hemingway. And I was like, oh, OK. And that was kind of a, a extra push to go ahead and move to Charleston and open up the first Rodney Scott's. And yeah. uh, it, it was a tough move because it it, it was a lot of mental and, and emotional things going on to can I ever go back to I'm never going back to maybe this is my future here. And uh, it was scary to make that jump, um, but it was well worth it. I took the leap of faith, opened in Charleston, and, you know, things have been great ever since. Yeah. A good business decision, right? But a tough family decision, right? I think... Do- do you speak to your dad still? I know you weren't for a while. Me and my dad did not speak. My dad died December of 2020. Okay. And uh, we still hadn't communicated like I thought we would at some point. Sure. But uh, it, there are some other family members that were quote unquote involved with his decision making that I don't uh-huh. really communicate with. Uh-huh. But uh, my mom, we're great. We talk every day. And okay. I'm still in Charleston, still making sure things are good in Charleston. And I check on my mom every day to make sure she's okay at the Hemingway operation. Yeah, I mean, and and one thing that folks will see reading your cookbook, or if they're exposed to your work in other ways, is how much you really rely on these sort of positive mantras, which I think for someone who's dealt with some of this family, um, family stuff in terms of going out on your own and the dynamics that that created, like, can you talk about, I see you even, you've got, you know, your shirt on today, um, which is your, which is the first page of your cookbook and like huge, huge font. It says every day is a good day, just right there. As soon as you open your cookbook, um, has that sort of, have you always had positive mantras like that through your life or what did, when did those start to become sort of so central to you and your brand? I used to always try to say positive things, um, early on, maybe back in 2000, I want to say seven or eight. Uh I started to realize that if I say positive things, I can be feeling positive all day long. And with that thought, I started to say today was good. And then I was like, uh, another good day. And then I found Uh myself saying, if I say every day is a good day, I'll feel better. And I was challenged with this one person that did not want to give me a loan that I so desperately needed at the time. And I looked at the guy and as he turned me down and I said, and I smiled and he was so puzzled by the fact that I was smiling and that he denied my loan. And I told him, I said, every day is a good day. And I took his business card and made it an inspiration for me walking out the door, looking at his card and saying, every day is a good day was my positive outlook as I walked out the door every morning. Yeah. And I couldn't get enough of saying it. I started to say it to other people and I saw the effect that it took on me by making me feel more positive and happy. So I continued yeah. to say it, say it. I printed it on my shirt. I think the world should know that every day is a good day. And to wear this shirt in public and so many people will say, wow, that's a great shirt. That's a great way to look at it. I'm going to start saying that, you know, you taking a positive effect, you spreading that energy of positivity yeah. and optimism. And I, and I said, you know what? I'm going to always say that every day is a good day. Yeah. I love that. And I, I love that you imbued that into your cookbook so clearly too. So speaking of the cookbook, I'd love to hear about the decision to write a cookbook. Is that Was that a, a career goal for you? You had thought about that? Was it something that was presented to you? Like how did this, how did you go from your great restaurateur career to now um, writing this first cookbook? Well, I got to tell you, um, I remember fourth, fifth grade, we first started doing writing projects in I remember the teacher saying things have to have a middle, a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh-huh. And 
I seem to do pretty good with some of the essays and stories in school. And I was like, man, writing a book, is it like this? I don't know. Forget it. I'll never do this. Uh-huh. And the idea kept coming up in 2015, 16, came again in 18 early on. And I said, you know what? Why not? Let's do yeah. it. And I said, you know, I have no problem. What what can you put in a book? What can you say to keep people interested in reading your book? You know, what's going to be my beginning, middle and end? And uh, I, d- I decided to go for it. I called on some professional help with Lola's Eli and, and the publishers connected us all. And, and here we are, man. Yeah. And did you know from the beginning that it would take the format that it did? Because you kind of have the book in two sections. And the first half is really a memoir of sorts uh, and talks about you and your life and also some of your philosophies around cooking and your approach to things. And then the recipes are the second half, which is a relatively unique uh, approach to cookbooks to sort of dedicate that much space at the front to the story of you instead of weaving it through. I mean, obviously, it's it's woven into the recipes too. But did you know from the beginning it would take that format? And how did that that feel to write it that way? We did not know at the beginning that this book would take the format that it's taken. Um, in the very beginning, we, we tried to associate a recipe with a story. Uh-huh. You know, fried chicken, Friday night's grandma's house. This is the kind of music that played. You know, yeah. banana pudding, Sunday afternoon, mama's house. This is what happened. And all of a sudden, you know, the the connection with the recipes started to be a little more detailed. And yeah. at that point where I was talking to Lois and I said, you know what, let me tell you about my life and these recipes. And we got together and we just started talking. And I gave him from being born in North Philly all the way to living in Charleston, South Carolina. And we added some recipes. And it was one of the most relieving things that I've ever done was to put my life on paper. Yeah. What did you learn in this process? I think anybody who writes their first cookbook is often surprised by like how much work it is and what goes into it and all of that. What did what did you learn through this process of doing a cookbook? The things I've learned in the process of this cookbook is that it's a very long process. It can take a while. It's it's a process that you gotta commit and dedicate yourself to and stay in focus. I also learned that when you talk about things that seem to have been you know, a disturbance or or a trouble situation that you've encountered, you you heal faster. You you say what's on your mind, and 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 maybe food is that answer. You, you always see these TV shows that say when you're depressed, you eat a, a tub of ice cream or chips or whatever. Uh huh. In in this situation, if you're not going through your best moment, you flip a few more pages and you cook something. You know, put a steak sandwich on. <laughs> yeah. Go throw a rack of ribs on. So it, it I kind of learned that uh. Telling your story and, and, and enjoying a decent meal afterwards is kind of relieving. You know, it makes the day better. It makes the evening better. And it gives you a different outlook and appreciation on all of the great things that you have experienced. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Rodney Scott. Don't go anywhere. Today's show is sponsored by Chronicle Books. I'm Cleo Worster, salt and spine producer, and Chronicle Books is the first place I go when I'm looking for a gift for someone. They publish a wide variety of cookbooks, so I know that I'll find something for anyone on my list. From Julia Tertian's Small Victories to Yodam Odalenghi's Plenty, there's something for everyone, including me. For over 50 years, Chronicle has been partnering with recipe developers, chefs, and organizations that represent the diversity of our world to create distinctive, design-forward products inspired by the enduring magic of books and by sparking the passions of others. 
Chronicle books are sold not just in bookstores. You'll find their telltale spectacles on store shelves of all kinds, all over the world, and at chroniclebooks.com. And we have a special promotion just for Salt and Spine listeners. You can use promo code SALT25 to receive 25% off of your orders, with free ground shipping on orders over $25 through the end of 2021. Once you start looking for Chronicle books, you can't miss them. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine, where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin to Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. If you're a new listener, check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We can only do it thanks to listeners like you. The best way to support our work here at Salt and Spine is by subscribing to our Patreon page. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com saltandspine. And now back to our conversation with Rodney Scott, author of Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. Now, the rest of the recipes in the book, uh, a lot of them are for uh, specific cuts of meat or for side dishes or desserts and things. But you also open the book with a guide to whole hog barbecue, including like a step by step photo illustrated guide to how to create the pit, how to create the 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 stack am i getting the terminology right for yes. the for the wood burn barrel, the, stack, yeah. the burn barrel exactly um you open the book with that i mean is your hope that like home cooks will actually try to do whole hog barbecue it is sort of a lofty thing for many home cooks to undertake on their own but is that your hope with this this section my hope with that section is to inspire that one guy or girl who wants to put a pit in their yard but uh-huh doesn't have complete approval from their spouse or doesn't have complete approval from their HOA. (laughs) So so one of the things about that, that part of the book is let me show you how to build a pit that you can erect cook on and have gone within the next day. Right. And there's no masonry involved in the cinder block pit. If you, if you notice this way that you can put it together like a puzzle and you can move it and put it away, bring it back out, put it back together whenever you want to, and again, remove it whenever you don't. And I, I remember hearing about three different guys say to myself, I want to build a pit in the backyard, but my wife won't let me. Uh-huh. And I said, what if you build a pit and take it down before she gets home or before she even notices or you compromise with her and say, hey, I'm going to put it here today, but I can take it away. Yeah. So showing how to do this pit, in my opinion, was let me show you how to do this without getting in trouble. And you can take it down and remove it whenever you're ready and put it back up anytime that you want. Sure. So that's yeah. what we chose to to give folks an idea on how to uh, build a pit and uh, have a burn barrel. This yeah. way you always have the elements to cook a whole hog if you want. Yeah, I love that. And I love that the book is both ambitious in that sense and also super approachable. And a lot of the other recipes for folks who might not be ready for that, that undertaking <laughs> quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know you recently were featured on um, Netflix, Chef's Table, the barbecue barbecue series um, that they did recently. What was that process like of being 
again, in the same way as your cookbook, really opening up your life and um, being having your life and your story documented in that way. You know, um, when Netflix uh, crew came in and they said they wanted to to shoot this documentary and I was like, okay, great, we can do it. And um, they said, we're going to do several interviews. And one of the interviews asked questions about home and personal things that I've encountered. And um, I started to explain it to them. And, and there was a small hesitation at first. And then I said, why don't you just go ahead? And I, I thought to myself, why don't you just go ahead and say what's on your mind and get it off your chest? And I decided to talk to them straight up as if it was just me and that one person, you know, yeah. and that would be Clay. And I, it, Clay asked a question and I answered him. And all of a sudden, and for me, I was focused on him and him alone. No cameras in the room, no anything. And I just gave it to him straight. I was like, here's my life. Here's what I experienced. And here are my situations. Yeah. And it felt good. Uh, it was like, this is all I got. This is Rodney. This is my life. This is what I do. Here you go. Yeah. And what has the reception been like to that episode? I mean, you, you've you obviously received many accolades and are recognized in the culinary world, but does that have sort of a wider reaching impact to be featured by Netflix in that way? To be featured by Netflix, uh, man, the the... The responses I've gotten because of that episode have been unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, people coming to me and, and you know, saying how they have been experiencing the same thing with family. They've been through similar situations with family. They have wanted to grow their family business and now they feel like they can. You know, some of them who didn't have, you know, the same ideas as other family members or cousins or coworkers that they were ready to to discuss. And because they were so inspired by what I went through, they felt like if you did it, we can do it too. And it was, I remember it was about two, maybe three people who came to me and said, because of that episode, they were inspired to go get their food handlers permit Mm -hmm. to go try and open their restaurant, to try to go and get their food trucks going because they felt like, Hey, this is just another guy that went after what he wanted and he did it. Why can't I? So I'd have to say the inspiration that it gave a lot of other people and the comfort for them to understand that they're not the only ones going through certain situations. That was one of the, the, the biggest responses I've gotten from the Netflix series. Yeah. So folks often say there's this, this phrase, right? That food is a unifier. Food is the great unifier. I know you've had the chance to cook all over the world. And sometimes that feels a little cliche to say that, but you write a little bit in the book about how barbecue in a sense is like a unifying type of cooking because the world over folks are cooking over fire uh, with heat sources like that. Can you talk about those experiences cooking around the globe and what that meant for you in terms of having that connection between other cuisines and seeing how barbecue is kind of universal? You know, I've I've always felt that it was two universal languages, one being food and the other being music. And Uh I love both of them. And, you know, to, to, to be able to travel around the world, uh, Australia was one where barbecue was so appreciated and so loved by so many. And the fact that no matter if you were finished cooking or just starting, all of these people started to come to where I was cooking and ask questions of what's going on. What is this? How do you do it? Is it really a whole pig? It's the same thing that happens when I'm cooking here in the United States. And I was like, wow, here I am on the other side of the world. And it's the same reaction to this one thing. Same thing in France, same thing in Uruguay. Um, I mean, California, Texas, everywhere I went, it was the same reaction. And 
you feel the love of people loving cooking with fire. Yeah. Just just by them coming up to you, asking questions on what you're cooking, how long, what's your process to do in this particular cut. Yeah. We're a show on cookbooks. So I always like to ask, like, have cookbooks been influential to you over the course of your life and your career? Like, did you grow up with them? Were there ones that you've turned to later on as you've become a, a chef and a restaurateur? Like, what role have they played for you? You know, cookbooks to me, I always thought they were a token or a memory from some people. Uh-huh. Um, growing up, there was never cookbooks around. It was always just somebody telling you, do it this way, throw this much in there. You know, it was never right. a real guideline to cooking in the rural areas of Neesmith and Hemingway. Sure. So in moving to Charleston in 2016 and 17, I started to notice that cookbooks were kind of more of a better guide to what you're cooking, more of a way to do different dishes without having to experiment with them so many different times before you get it right. Yeah. And I started to take a lot more notice to cookbooks and a lot more respect to them because food comes from the soul. And the people that are writing these books and giving these recipes are giving you a part of their soul and sharing their love for whatever dish it is that they're presenting to you. So I've learned a lot more respect for cookbooks. There are quite a few books in my book collection now, and, and I will be definitely getting more. I have a whole new respect for them. I love them. I love that the ideas and approaches on different dishes, they make you look good when you're in the kitchen. Yeah. Right. All the recipes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Are there particular books or authors that have been influential to you as you've started to accumulate more books? You know, it's been a few people. Um, Anne Burrell, which I recently hung out with a little bit. Uh, okay. She sent me her book. Oh, man, it's it's so many books I've got. Uh, Adrian Miller's book. I just yeah. got um, the new one. Yes. Lisa Donovan. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Uh-huh. Lisa Donovan's book, um, Marcus Samuelson, Mashama. There's so many books down there. <laughs> yeah. I've been told you need to get some of these books out of the kitchen or build a shelf. <laughs> so yeah. it's, 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 it, the collection is growing, you know, and when you when you open these books and you see that these different feelings and emotions and soul are put into these recipes, and it's, it's kind of like you can see them writing it down or see them making it and serving it to you. You know, it's, it's right. kind of a... a I don't, some type of energy that I get when I read these these folks' books and recipes. Yeah, that's a great that's a great list, and I definitely feel you on the having too many and not knowing where to put them all. <laughs> yeah. My shelves are overflowing. Um, well, we always end with a little game, so I thought we would play a barbecue themed game today. We've got four stacks of cards here, so you can draw from any of the four. We've got proteins, of course, which are proteins vegetables self-explanatory flavors are herbs spices different flavoring agents and then we've got a deck of uh, secret ingredient cards so these can be kind of just random ingredients or more really obscure ingredients that you might not um, have ever worked with before um, or at least not in a barbecue sense so I'll let you kind of pick and choose amongst those four if you want to draw a couple and see how we might put together a great a great picnic lunch with those ingredients kind of think of it kind of like as a chopped a take on chopped what, what, what do you have to work with in your box you know when you open it up so do you want to do one of each or do you want to pick yeah, and choose? Do, let's, let's do one of each. Let me see. Let's do one of each. Okay. Let's start with our protein. Okay. The protein we have is salmon. Uh-oh. Okay. All right. There we go. We've got uh, vegetable carrots. Uh-huh. 
The flavor we're working with is red pepper flakes. Uh Uh-huh. And our secret ingredient is sea urchin. Whoa. All right. Well, we've got seafood on the menu. That's clear. Salmon and sea urchin with carrots and red pepper flakes. Can we barbecue any of these? What can we do here? Okay. So I would take uh, the carrot and probably... Am I allowed to use anything else on the carrot? Yeah, you can assume you have like a full pantry and stuff. Yeah. I remember I remember being cornered with some baby carrots and I took some olive oil and a tiny sprinkle of brown sugar and I kind of offset smoke them okay. until they had a little sweet snap. The pepper flake, of course, is one ingredient that I would use with a lot of things. But in this case, I would probably take the pepper flake and add it to the salmon with a little cayenne, uh, some kosher salt. I would probably put some paprika on that and maybe a quick grilling on that, a little sear. Sure. Yeah. Um, sea urchin, I've never, ever done. Yeah. Uh, I would be calling in a lifeline to some seafood person and say, help me with sea urchin because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. You're going to delegate <laughs> that one. <laughs> Man. Uh, yeah. I would, I would definitely delegate to sea urchin. Yeah. But I would take a chance on the other three for sure. Wow. Yeah. That sounds delicious. Should we try one more? Let's see if we... Let's, let's do it again. Let's see if I can and can figure that out. All right. Protein, we've got turkey. Yes, turkey. There we go. Vegetable, um, asparagus. Yes. All right. F- feeling better about this round? So far. Flavor is mustard. I think that's... Ooh. It looks like it's powdered, but it, open to interpretation. Any kind of mustard. Pungent face. And then secret ingredient. Oh, right. All right. So this is naboshi, which are dried baby sardines. Dried baby sardines. We're really getting all the seafood cards here. Mm, Dried baby sardines. I would take... They're described as salty, fishy, and crispy for your your reference. Yeah. I would uh, definitely smoke that turkey for sure. Uh-huh. With some Rodney's rib rub, of course. I would okay. put that asparagus on a hot grill real quick with a dusting of rib rub on the asparagus as well, because that's what I always use. Sure. Um, I would probably take the naboshi, uh, pro- probably try to create a salad with that. Oh, maybe, interesting. Um, okay. May- maybe try to try-, try to make something close to a Caesar with it. With a, oh, like sure. a dressing. Yeah. The mustard. You've got mustard and Caesar, too. That's good. Um, yeah. Maybe combine those last two. The mustard and the boshi somehow make a, a, a smooth combination and, and create a salad with that. Yeah. Mm. I think that could be great. That's a, a great path to a Caesar salad, which would go great with some smoked turkey. And, a nice Caesar salad. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> All right. Well, um, that was so much fun. Thank you so much, Rodney, for joining us on Salt and Spine. Oh, man. Thank you for having me. Now you got me scratching my head even after it's done. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah, that we sent you for a twist on, on both of those. Yeah, that is uh, not stuff over the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for being a good sport and playing along. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find featured recipes from Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. 
Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also leave a rating on iTunes or join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Clea Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes for home cooks and now offers digital classes as well. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. And a special thanks this week to our sponsor, Chronicle Books. Remember, you can get 25% off your order by using the code SALT25, S-A-L-T-25, at chroniclebooks.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.